Bunny. Um, if we don't know each other, my name's Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Um, uh, this Sunday is the last day of Christmas. Um, maybe, maybe for you, Christmas has been dead and gone for a long time. That's fine. Um, but you could have been partying up until today. Um, and if you want to kick off a party again because it's still Christmas, feel free. However, uh, tomorrow, January 6th, is Epiphany. Um, and so I just decided to cheat a little bit and bring forward the Epiphany passages and preach uh, on them today, um, which is in pointing to the, the coming of the Magi to, to Jesus when he was a child, uh, which helps us to see how the light of God has dawned on the Gentiles and what that means for his kingship to be displayed, not just over Israel, but over the nations. Um, so just like the Magi brought their offering, brought their, their gifts in response, this Sunday we have Becky painting over here. I don't know if you, you've noticed. Um, this is something that we, we do every once in a while. This is a, a way that artists can respond to the word. Uh, so that's for some people, you may be watching and saying, what is going on there? I don't understand. And you may be like me. I'm not a visual person. I don't, God doesn't speak to me that way. It doesn't click for me. And so you can just probably ignore it. It's not going to do anything. Some people are visual learners and that God speaks to them through visual things happening. And you will see things in the painting that I will not. And if you explained it to me very slowly, I probably still wouldn't understand. And that's just how God works in people sometimes, and, and that's okay. So Becky's bringing her offering uh, to the king over here on the canvas, and you can participate in that how, how you like. Um, this past week, I was uh, in Atlanta for a few days at um, a conference called Passion. Uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with it. I grew up going to Passion because I was from Atlanta, and... Uh, Louis Giglio and Passion were based there, so Passion was a big deal for us, and I went as a college student. It's a conference for college students who are 18 to 25-year-olds, and I have a friend who works for Passion now, so he gave me a pass to go um, sit in a suite in Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, which was sweet, um, and I've never felt so old. <laughs> I, it just really hit me. Um, I, I'm only 34, but I just didn't understand. Um, like I was looking at the people on the stage and being like, what are they wearing? This is ridiculous. I can't believe that this is cool. And I'm just so far removed from what's cool. I, li I just cannot understand. Like guys, actually a guy that I went to high school with is leading worship on the stage with this giant dad sweater that's like, almost to his knees, and it's like, this guy is cool, but he is, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, half the people on the stage, they're getting this big applause. I didn't, I didn't know who they were. I had to Google them, I, and everybody didn't need an introduction. There's no introduction. You're just expected to know. I had no idea who they were. I just pick up on context clues, Google them, and find out who the heck they were. When John Piper and Ravi Zacharias were on the stage, I was like, I know those guys are. I don't need to Google them. These other people, oh, and Tim Tebow, I knew who he was, for sure. Um, but if, I don't know, maybe you're a leader in your particular field or, or maybe in Christian ministry, but when you're a pastor like me, um, 
whenever I get in an environment where there's Christian worship happening, there's just this thing in my brain that's constantly running and screening. Why are they doing this? What are they singing? Why are they playing this way? What are they saying? Because it's my job to constantly screen those things for us, and this is stuff that I think about all the time. It's really hard a lot of times to be in the room and just participate, um, which is not a good thing. Um, and I, there's people on this stage in these three days that's like, I don't like what they're doing. I don't like this. Or I don't like they could do this better. Why are they doing that? And I want to ask my friend why they make these choices. And I found lots of reasons why I could look at other people and say, they're not quite doing this right. And then I just looked at 65,000 college students and these people on the stage who sincerely love Jesus. And of course, there's people in the stadium who don't love Jesus. Um, they're just there to see what's going on. And of course, people do things in their ministries that I don't agree with or whatever. But in that moment, it was 65,000 people honestly and sincerely loving and praising Jesus. And I was like, this is amazing. This is, this is glorious. And I need to shut up. In my brain, just need to shut up and stop finding all the ways that I think they're wrong. Because right now, it is very clear these people are my brother, they are my sister, and Jesus is worthy of this kind of worship. And that was so beautiful to see that. Um, and I hope that we are all get some moments where we would um, feel that, that we are a part of a great company of people responding to this revealed king um, that the scriptures are pointing us to this morning. And it was a really cool feeling to be a 34-year-old, almost 35-year-old dad and to say, I don't care how I disagree with these people. I really pray that my daughter finds her way into this room, that my son finds his way into this room and they experience this because this is awesome. This is beautiful. So I would hope today that we would respond to Jesus' good and glorious kingship as revealed in the scriptures this morning. We're going to be um, front to back a little bit or back to front as we have been the past few weeks. Um, and like I said, next week we'll start in Revelation uh, for, for a few months and talk about the end of the world, which is going to be fun. Right? Somebody over here said, what? And I was like, I feel you, man. Isaiah 60, 1 through 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. 
because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All these from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Now we'll turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. 1 through 12. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given, to, given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that the light has indeed risen, the light has come, and it has shined on the nations, that you have summoned us to your throne, to the unexpected side of the manger. 
to an unexpected place to get on our knees and to worship you. And Father, I pray that we would be bidden to do so, that we would respond with sincerity. And Father, this, this season is, is lo- it can feel long and exhausting due to obligations and festivities. But this morning, God, I pray that we would be reminded the place we are called is a place of worship. And we come here with love. Make us lovers of you, Lord Jesus, more deeply and truly. Amen. <clears throat> this, uh, this, this portion of the story um, in the Gospel of Matthew comes actually before the passage that we talked about last week. Last week we, we looked at what Herod's response is when he finds out what has happened in Bethlehem and the slaughter of the innocents there as he responds to Jesus' invasion into his, his kingdom. Uh, this is the part of the story that immediately precedes the arrival of these wise men, these magi, these sorcerers, astrologers, royalty, whatever they are, from the east. They come from the east to respond to what they've seen written in the heavens, to what degree they even understand what they're responding to is never even really elaborated on in the Gospels, other than that they believe that this person who's born is this figure that they barely even know of. They're not Jewish, but they've responded, and they bring these gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we have in the lectionary this previous promise in the book of Isaiah that the nations would respond and bring gold and frankincense. And of course, Matthew adds this detail that they bring myrrh as well, and myrrh is a burial spice. So there's this, right at the beginning of this gospel, this indication of where Jesus's kingship is heading and where the story is heading, even then from this moment uh, early in his life. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, tells us that this thing that's happening that we see in Matthew chapter 2 and prophesied in Isaiah 60 is actually at the heart of what he is called to. He calls himself uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, proclaiming a mystery that has been hidden for ages and ages. And he'll speak of it this way as well in the book of Colossians, uh, that Paul sees what is happening with the Magi, with us, a largely Gentile crowd here, um, as at the heart of what he is meant to proclaim. In, in the book of Ephesians, there is this running theme through, throughout the book. And um, there's, a, there's a great book called The Drama of Ephesians by Timothy Gombus that, that pill, spells this out for you. It's a, I really recommend it. Um, I read it 10 years ago and picked it up again this week. Um, running throughout the book of Ephesians is this kind of big cosmic view of what is going on in the work of Jesus, not just in him, but also how Jesus comes and overthrows what Paul calls the the powers and authorities in the world. They repeatedly show up. And Paul doesn't spend a lot of time explaining what or who these powers or authorities are, except that they're spiritual in nature, they have some influence in the world, and that Jesus' reign overthrows their reign. And in Ephesians chapter 3, you can see what's happening is this kind of surprise attack. This thing, this mystery has been hidden for ages and ages from everybody. 
That's what Paul says. Nobody has been able to see. Nobody has known what's coming. And when this thing happens in the new church that Paul is helping to birth, because he says this thing is being displayed by these holy apostles and prophets, of which he is one, surprisingly, that when this thing is unveiled, it is, it is a detonation to the powers and the principalities, the authorities that Paul is opposing in the world. And the, and the nature of that good news is actually being played out in his own life. And that's why Paul repeatedly expresses to his Greek audience that he is a prisoner in this Mediterranean shame and honor culture. You don't just lightly throw out that you're a prisoner. It is deeply humiliating to be a prisoner. I mean, I think we, we probably can understand that in our own time. If I'm perfectly honest... Uh, I tend to think that people in jail are just those people over there. And I just kind of put them in a box in my head as just bad, icky people that I don't really want to think about, even though we have plenty of stories of people being falsely imprisoned. I'm, I just, my assumption is nobody is falsely imprisoned, and they, I just don't want to think about them. More so in Paul's shame and honor culture, to say, to acknowledge, to put on the table that you are in prison is deeply, deeply harmful, or so you would think if you're one of Paul's company. And Paul puts it out there on display, repeatedly says that he is a prisoner for what he is doing. And Paul is actually saying that in his own imprisonment, there is something of a disclosure of what God is doing in the world in surprising and unexpected ways. He's saying in some sense, look at me, and in me see Jesus. In, uh, in the story of the wise men coming to the, to the manger, not the manger, Jesus is past the manger stage, but to his early childhood, whatever, bedroom. He is, we have this thing there that maybe at times, if we have grown up in the church, loses some of its peculiarity, loses some of its strangeness. And if we're listening to Paul's words about how the, the mystery that's been hidden for angels is so powerful that Gentiles would come and be a part of the kingdom, we can kind of come to Ephesians 3, we can come to the events of Epiphany and say kind of, what's the big deal? Why is this a big deal? And if you're not familiar with the Christian story at all, certainly this just seems like, I mean, I guess this is kind of significant, but it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Why is this a thing? Because we don't value this distinction between Jew and Gentile. For one thing, we live in a largely Gentile environment, right? The, the vast majority of our culture is Gentile. And we just don't tend to think in distinctions between Jew and Gentile. That is a distinction without a difference for us. That is unfortunately also true, uh, and also in some ways fortunately true within the Christian church. In the West. What is the big deal about this distinction? Why, the first time I was reading back over this passage again and getting ready, I wrote down, why is this such a big deal to Paul? Why is this at the heart of the mystery that's been hidden for ages? There are a number of different ways that we come and resist 
what the events of Epiphany tell us. Because central to those events is an attack on our claims of a rightful place in the kingdom of God. And there are mistakes that any of us can make that fit into either of these Jew or Gentile categories. We are a people who, in our own culture, often say, because of who or what I am, I deserve a place. We are a culture who, maybe as much as or more than ever, organizes our discourse around things like identity politics. And it's, it's easy to say, well, those people do that, but when you do that, you yourself are also involved in the game of identity politics. And it's comfortable to say, because I am liberal or because I am conservative, I have a place. Because I am white or because I am not white, because of my sexual orientation, because of my economic status, because of who I am, I deserve a seat at the table. I, in some sense, deserve a place. That's the the way by which our society organizes itself either in politics or deeper in our social structures. We organize our friendship groups this way because of who I am. I deserve a place as opposed to and against the people who are not like me. And nobody really escapes from this means of separating. Even we who, who say that kind of thing is wrong tend to separate ourselves and say, but we are the people who don't do that. And that is a way that, that is a, a kind of entitlement that we carry into our way of thinking and into the world. And it is very easy to carry that with us into our thinking about God. Because of who I am, of course, God wants me to be a part of his kingdom, of course. Look at the kind of person that I am. The kind of people that are in the kingdom are people like me. I was um, shocked uh, and confronted by this um, in, in a new way. I was, uh, sometimes I go and, and just read advice columns because I generally find them hilarious um, both the kind of questions that people ask and then sometimes the advice that's given. It's um, amusing to me in a deeply disturbing sort of way. And um, I, I read this, I don't even, I had not been on this website before. I can't even remember what it was called. But they have this advice columnist. Um, and the person asked, um, I'm in love with this person, I'm dating them, and um, I've known them my whole life. They're a good person. They're good to me. We have a good relationship that's healthy. But I just found out he's pro-life. What should I do? I, can't, I, I have no love for him anymore. And the advice columnist was like, this person is a monster. You need to break up with them. Just like, just like that. Boom. Disqualified. And I was like, this is insanity both the question and the response is crazy. I cannot believe this is the world that we live in. Apart from the fact that I am pro-life uh, and feel like they're saying something about me, I just can't believe that without knowing any of the parties involved, the person is like, obviously this person is a monster, dispose of them immediately. Um, but I, and then I kind of put it in my head the other way. What if, what if somebody 
said to some conservative magazine, I just found out that this person that I deeply love is pro-choice. Probably a, a similar kind of answer would be given. Get rid of them immediately. They are a monster. Dispose of them. This is the way that we operate in our culture. It's deeply unhealthy, and it's especially unhealthy because it teaches us an entitlement. They're a kind and class of people that I am a part of. And surely God approves of people like me. We carry that assumption very often. I, I, would, I would say that this is the kind of assumption that is carried along by Herod and his people. That of course the God of Israel when he comes will be the God of Israel. And this is the mistake that Israel makes with Jesus. What is Jesus doing hanging out with X, Y, and Z kinds of people? What is he doing not crushing Rome immediately? We are the kind of people who are on the side of God, and God is on our side. And when they carry this assumption, they miss who Jesus is, and they find themselves outside the kingdom because they deeply misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. Now, also, there is another kind of logic that is normal in our culture. It may not be about who I am. It could be about what I do. And it is normal and natural for us to say, because of the kinds of things that I do or because of the kinds of things that I do not do, I am a good enough person, and I identify and separate the world, maybe not based on these identity categories, but based upon their actions, I am good enough. And so we will read the, the story of the Magi coming and saying, of course, the wise men deserve to be there because they bring their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh. And the way actually that God works is to come to him with enough gifts, and if you bring enough gifts into the to the door of the party, you'll be invited in to the party. And we, by nature and by habit, are the kinds of people that expect and assume who I am and my acceptance is based upon the quality of life that I bring. This is a very normal Gentile Greek way of thinking in Paul's day. The way to be on the side of the gods is to bring them the correct offering. And if you bring enough offerings, you earn their favor. And if something is going wrong in your life, you have not done enough to earn the favor of the gods. You must do more, do the right things to get their favor. And this is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus confronts in his own life. Refuses this kind of rationale. And what Paul is doing when he shows himself as a weak, dishonored, shameful person, he's saying, I, a prisoner, am actually on the side of God. And you may ordinarily miss it. Both of these category mistakes, God will accept me because of the kind of person that I am, God will accept me because of the things that I do, are demolished when we see what Paul is unveiling. 
Because when Paul says Gentiles are brought in to Israel, what he's saying is the nature of the kingdom itself, the nature of the gospel of the good news is that it is neither your identity or your deeds that brings you into the kingdom. It is instead the revealed glory of Jesus. So he exposes his chains to the world and said, I am so weak. I am so small. And he will not hesitate to tell us in other parts of his letters, I'm not just the least of the saints. I'm chief of sinners. And he will say, here is all of my weakness. And in Jesus, I am rescued. So when Paul is saying that the the bringing in of the Gentiles It demolishes the work of the powers and the principalities in the world. He's saying that bringing in the inclusion of the Gentiles destroys all of Israel's expectations. It destroys all pagan expectations. And it leaves in the middle of the rubble of idolatry the only surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. So when we come to Epiphany, we are not saying, well, this is a nice story. There's some gifts. I should bring gifts. I'm Gentile. This is cool. What we are saying is actually this is the unveiling of the glory of God and His strength and power which overcomes sin and darkness. And what what is important for us to hear in this story in Matthew chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3 is that we continue to live in a world that is deeply enmeshed in the ways of the powers and the principalities. It is deeply, deeply enmeshed in a world that is designed in many ways, conspiring to get you and I to view the world along these fracturings of division and sorting and parceling. The world is pressing in on us constantly to make us subtly think consistently, I am not like them. I am better. And God approves of the people who are better than A, B, and C. It is a a destructive revelation to the powers that God would make one family from all nations. It is a destructive refutation of the logics of power and principality that God would cause all people from every tribe and tongue and people group and class to somehow one day see Jesus and confess Him as Lord and Savior. Because in the minds and the logics of the way of this world, everything should be eternal fracturing, disintegration, trampling over of the powerful upon the weak who will trample over the weaker who will trample over the weaker. This is the disintegrated, fraying world that the powers of darkness deeply desire and I willingly contribute to. Paul is not letting us off the hook here and saying this is all outside of you and pressing in on you and you're really just an oppressed person. He is saying you are oppressed by the powers of darkness and you contribute to them because you yourself also make these kind of decisions about God and other people based on your identity and your deeds. 
And he's saying there's only one way to be delivered from them. The only way to be delivered from this eternal system of trampling and pointing and fracturing and division and disintegration and destruction is to see the one God who divested Himself of all power, who has every right to exclude everyone and has instead come as a child, who has come as a weak one, who has come and said, anyone can come. It is not just this group. It is not just that group. It is, if you come to Jesus, you are all welcome. And so the Gospel this morning is calling us and comforting us once again. If you know that you have been deceived by the powers of this world, to think that you are better than them and therefore more appealing and approachable to God, the Gospel is calling you to lay aside your idolatry. That is self-worship. And that self-worship can tangle itself up with very nice, polite, counseling jargon. And you may even dress that kind of thing up in the language of self-denigration, but you and I will consistently find ways to say, I prefer me to everybody else, and surely God agrees. And this morning the Gospel is saying, leave that kingdom. You can bear the name of Christian. You may be a Christian and so easily slidden back into the ways of the world. And Jesus is saying He will not allow that kind of idolatry in His people because He will not allow them to be imprisoned. He came to deliver them. And you can also hear the comfort of the Gospel this morning. That you can put up your hand and say, I am the unexpected one. I, I am the wicked one. I am the astrologer in the East who has looked for any other sign that I can find from anyone, anywhere. I have wandered far away trying to be the right kind of person, trying to do enough good things. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus is, you, your part, is nothing. You get no part of the formula. It is all Jesus. And he has enough for you. See, the, the story of the incarnation, the story of that moment when a child is honored as a king, is offensive that these wise, powerful, wealthy people would bow the knee to a child. That is an offensive proposition. And the gospel calls you to be so offended this morning. That nothing that you value about yourself and other people is actually what determines the mercy of God. So God invites you to give them to Him. Give Him all of those ways that you have determined you are acceptable or better or precious. Give them to Him. You don't need them anymore.
He is the eternal King of glory who has robed Himself in humility and given away all of His power so that He might be a servant to all. Give away all the means by which you have evaluated yourself and deemed yourself either good enough or not good enough. You don't need those anymore. Give up that gold, what is precious to you. It is instead the preciousness of the God who would need that myrrh given to him as a child as he climbed down into your grave and mine. The glory of God is revealed when the Gentiles are gathered in because in this moment, God makes everything all about him. And under the shade of his cross, we find glory and mercy and a home for us. If the gospel is calling you this morning, and is pricking you, and is pushing you, and exposing the prejudices and pride and arrogance of your heart, take heart. God delights to call you home. So while you may be tempted to feel deeply ashamed this morning, when you repent, you should know that God hurries to embrace you. He loves you and always has and has made a place in his kingdom for you. If you have come into this place feeling like there is no way that you can measure up and and find a place in the kingdom, there's good news here for you. You never could measure up. You always were an outsider like any Gentile ever. And the good, mysterious, surprising power of the gospel is for you too. It doesn't matter how far away you've fallen off the mark. God's mercy, His glory outshines and outstrips the darkness that you've embraced time and time again. Jesus will make Himself manifest to you in what Paul describes as the multifaceted wisdom of God worked out for you and towards you and in you forever and ever. What you have tasted, God will complete. What you feel you may have lost, God will give back to you tenfold. Come see Jesus this morning and lay aside any other metric of measuring and instead embrace him, the God who comes as a child to receive your worship and to deliver you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that it is neither by our identity or our deeds that we are delivered, but it is instead by the identity of the one who is the Son of God and the King of Israel and his own deeds for us and on our behalf that delivers us. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would convict us where we've held on to the ways of this world, where we have contributed and conspired with the powers and authorities that you come to undermine and destroy. Pray that you would convict us where we have been content to measure ourselves by our own standards 
and cast aside those who are different from us just so that we can build our own case in our minds and our hearts. Would you please forgive us, God? Help us to repent by your Holy Spirit, to turn away from ourselves as the ruling stick and instead turn to you. And Father, I pray for those who know that they know that they know that they are not good enough, that they are an outsider, that they deserve to be an outsider. I pray, God, that you would comfort them with the good news that says, though the powers and authorities of this world would lead you to believe that God would cast you out because you don't measure up, you are actually far better than that lie. And you come to gather the outsider. You come to bring them in and bring them close. I pray, God, for all of those who've lost hope this morning. Let them take heart in you. And for all of us who have taken hope in false gods, I pray that you would remove that false hope from us. Make much of yourself, Lord Jesus. Help us to be a people who are not afraid of our weakness and vulnerability but would instead see those things as means by which you display your power and your might. Let us be confident in you, Lord Jesus, and not falsely confident in ourselves. Forever comfort our hearts, God, as we make our way in this world that is not like your kingdom. We pray that your kingdom would come in fullness and in power. May it be so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.